HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Welcome to Meet in 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. And this week, I'm joined by Hannah Forden, HRN's membership coordinator. Hey, Kat. This past weekend, we traveled to Denver, Colorado with our engineer, David Tadashore, for Slow Food Nations, a festival of flavor, culture, and exploration organized by Slow Food USA. Over two days, we spoke to many of the participants, from slow food leaders and policy experts to farmers, chefs, and scholars, including Chef Massimo Batora of Osteria Francescana, the world's best restaurant, Dr. David Shields, who's known throughout the South as the flavor saver, Carrie Balcombe of the American Grassfed Association, and Mitchell Davis of the James Beard Foundation. You can hear all of our coverage at heritageradionetwork.org. Just search for Heritage Radio Network on tour. The second annual Slow Food Nations was focused on identifying tangible solutions to problems in the food system and developing specific actionable items for positive change. Towards the end of the festival, the Slow Food International Press Office sent an email underscoring this approach. The subject line read, Slow Food Nations embraces equity, inclusion, and justice in food. It outlines Slow Food USA's formal commitment to food justice and dismantling structures that perpetuate inequity and exclusion. The statement made us reflect on our interviews from the weekend and how they fit into this new equity, inclusion, and justice manifesto. It just so happens that this intersects nicely with our mission of making the world more equitable, sustainable, and delicious. We're starting with equity. Many factors have led to the structural inequalities in the United States food system. It starts on farms, where low wages for migrant workers are the norm, and goes all the way to the kitchen table, where nearly a quarter of Americans live in food deserts where they lack access to nutritious options. 
It's a huge problem, one that overwhelms even the most passionate food advocates. That's why I was thrilled to cross paths with John Eichert. He holds a PhD in agricultural economics and spent much of his career at land-grant universities. He believes that there is a way to solve the issue of equity. It requires us to view food as a public utility and place a larger emphasis on human relationships. I say hunger today is discretionary because there's plenty of food in the U.S. There's plenty of food in the world to feed everybody. But if we rely on the markets to get it to people, then the markets are only going to feed those people who have the money to compete in the marketplace. And some of us have more than enough money to, you know, to, to compete for a corn crop to produce fuel for our cars while they're hungry people or, or to buy food and waste 40% of it rather than leave it for the hungry people. So we have to go somewhere else. So we've tried to rely on government programs, but unfortunately... We, we have relied on programs that are, that are at, the, at the state and national level, which are inherently impersonal again. Those economic relationships are impersonal, buying and selling rather than really seeing the people that produce the food or people that consume it. Our government programs have been impersonal. Our, our charities have become impersonal. So if we're going to deal with the issue of food security, the first condition of sustainability, we have to do it in a different way. Mm. And I've said, okay, what if we consider food as a basic human right, which they do within the food sovereignty movement, and then what if we see of a way of ensuring that right within the context of the U.S. society? And I said, okay, we're not socialism, communism didn't work any better than capitalism and feeding the hungry people. Mm -hmm. So what can we do? We can look here and we can see things that are working here. We can see the public utility. Public utilities we depend upon for water, we depend on sewage, electricity, natural gas, a whole range of things that we have public utilities. And the purpose is, is, is to separate those functions that are essential public services from the vagaries of the market. For example, when I grew up, we didn't have electricity until right before I started high school. That was because we were on a way out in the country. It made no economic sense to run that electric wire down that road about three or four miles for two or three of us. Our electric bill is probably less than a dollar a month. Now, what economic sense? But somebody decided those people out here in the country have a right to electricity. So they formed an electric co-op, a public utility. They brought the electric to us. I'm saying that's what people need that are hungry today. That's if we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to, to good, healthful food. And, and we're going to find a way to get it to them. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. It won't feed people. And it has to be a personal system. It has to be one where there's a sense of connectedness between the people that are getting the food and the people that are producing the food. And there's a sense of connectedness between the people in the community. So when they say, okay, we're going to ensure this right for food, then they know the children that are in school. They see those kids. And the people that are having the kids that are, you know, that are hungry, hungry today that get food, then they see the people that are really supporting them. And there's a sense of personal connectedness and responsibility there that you don't get in the markets and we're not getting through the impersonal program. If you want to hear more from John Eichard, listen to the full interview on episode 152 of Heritage Radio Network on tour or visit his website, johneichard.com. That's J-O-H-N-I-K-E-R-D dot com. The second piece of Slow Food USA's new manifesto is inclusion. They've pledged to 
quote, move from being a majority white organization to a wonderfully diverse and multicultural organization with people of color well represented at the national and local levels. While we were at Slow Food Nations, I met Adrian Miller, also known as the Soul Food Scholar, who's a self-described recovering lawyer. Miller served as the deputy director of President Bill Clinton's Initiative for One America, the first freestanding White House office in history to examine and focus on closing the opportunity gaps that exist for minorities in this country. After leaving the White House, Adrian became a writer, focusing on soul food, using his expertise to elevate voices of color in the food world. So I went to the bookstore and I found a book on the shelves called Southern Food, at Home, On the Road in History, written by John Edgerton. In that book, he said the tribute to African-American cooks has yet to be written. Mm. So I just emailed him cold because the book was about 10 years old when I got it. And I just thought somebody had done the work. And he said, you know, nobody's really taken on the work. So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that started me on the journey. I think that food tells the story of a people. Absolutely. Um, But I also think food is a powerful way to connect us. And I'm very interested in racial reconciliation. And um, so I'm looking at, there's a lot of conversations about as divided as our society is in many ways. In some ways we're not, but in many ways we are. How can we come together? And there's so many creative ideas right now surrounded about food, just getting us to the table. Because when you're at a table with somebody, you recognize their humanity. And when somebody cooks for you and serves you food, in a way they're saying they care about your survival. Absolutely. They're saying saying, I love you. it's an act of love. Absolutely. Even if the food is straight nasty, at least they made the effort, right? Um, but I'm also interested in the social mobility of food. Mm-hmm. As I looked at soul food, so soul food gets dissed a lot because it's viewed as unhealthy and the food, uh, like slave food. Right. But when you look at some of these dishes that I named in my meal, at one point they were considered prestige foods yeah. in some culture. Like mac and cheese started as royalty food. It's, I mean, in my heart it still is. It's... <laughs> and even chitlin, something like chitlin yeah. was something that rich white people were eating in the 1600s and 1700s. And that blows a lot of people's minds. That's really interesting. Because you never think of chitlins that way. To hear my full interview with Adrian Miller, listen to episode 149 of Heritage Radio Network on tour. We'll be right back with our final Slow Food Nations highlight after a quick word from our sponsors. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. Today, we're bringing you three interviews that highlight Slow Food's new manifesto. We've talked about equity and inclusion, and now we turn our focus on justice. The organization stated their commitment to, quote, 
Be honest about how white supremacy, economic exploitation, and cultural domination have fundamentally shaped the agricultural history of the U.S. One slow food panel, When Disaster Strikes, included first-person accounts of the aftermath of natural disasters in New Orleans, Puerto Rico, Napa, and Japan. The panel discussion grappled with topics like vulnerable communities, food waste on a large scale, and devastation. I got to speak with Tara Rodriguez-Besosa about her efforts to decolonize Puerto Rico's food system and help farmers rebuild after last year's devastating hurricanes. Hurricane Irma and then two weeks later, Hurricane Maria hit um, different islands in the Caribbean. And one of the places that they hit happened to be our space, which is in English, El Departamento de la Comida is the Department of Food. Mm -hmm. It's a project that we started in 2010, mostly because we wanted to focus on the quality of food that got to people's tables. And without having to wait for any kind of government response at that moment, how can we put things into our own hands and just do this ourselves in a way to have a mission that we could support local organic uh, agriculture through the consumption in any way possible, right? And have the people of Puerto Rico gain real access to healthy local foods. Puerto Rico lost 80% of its agricultural production after these hurricanes. Uh, Before the hurricanes, we were importing about a little more than 85% of our food. And so if you do the math. Right now, Puerto Rico is importing up to 99% of its food. That's crazy. Which more than ever increases its um, insecurity and obviously it's one of the biggest food deserts ever, which is very, very crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. Even before the storms, access to locally grown food was scarce in Puerto Rico. So after losing her business to the storms, Tara launched a new project to empower her community. Many farmers were left traumatized by the losses they suffered during Hurricanes Irma and Maria and felt unsure if they wanted to farm again. Tara's new project, El Fondo de Resiliencia de Puerto Rico, or the Puerto Rico Resilience Fund, has done everything from cooking to building roofs, distributing seeds, and providing much-needed emotional support. So with the Resilience Fund, we focus on five different areas— rainwater collection systems, renewable energy. We get a lot of seeds donated and we help with farm work, Uh, reforestation, because we also lost, I'd say, 80% of our forests (laughs) in this past storm. Um, And last but not least, actually the most important piece is community wellness. How can we support right now farmers that are going through not only the everyday obstacles of having a small, organic, sustainable, beautiful project. As if that, that usually, wasn't challenging enough. Yeah, yeah <laughs> doesn't get any support anyway. Um, specifically, you know, a lot of uh, nations in the Caribbean are not like Colorado. We don't really have enough um, support from other organizations. It's very much, you're trying to prove to the world that this is, you know, beautiful, possible, and very important. Puerto Rico faces many barriers to its food sovereignty. One of the major things that happens with any kind of colonial situation is that we grow up in this world where we don't know that we can collaborate with each other. We don't know that we can trust each other. Mm -hmm. We don't know that we can actually be autonomous. There are laws in place that distance Puerto Rico from its food supply. Yeah, so we need to look up this law called the Jones Act. 
The Jones Act, also known as the Merchant Marine Act, was put in place in 1920. It states that all resources brought to the island have to be shipped via the U.S. Merchant Marines. Yeah, we're an island. Yes. We're actually a series of islands. Puerto Rico has about four different islands, so it's, we call it the archipelago of Puerto Rico. Um, we are a colony um, of the United States of America, which means that we're American citizens, yet we don't get to vote for the president, yet we pay taxes, yet our whole shipment of everything from cars to food to education, pretty much everything is meant to be imported. Which is expensive and inefficient. And Puerto Ricans have limited political representation to make their voices heard and to change these restrictive laws. And it has to go through Florida in U.S.-owned, U.S.-operated ships. Um, and so all the food that we get has an average of five days traveling from Florida, Jacksonville, to Puerto Rico. So no matter where the product is coming from, it first has to go up to the mainland. This means that Puerto Ricans have little knowledge of or control over where their food is coming from. When you ship a lot of stuff, not only does it become more expensive, but it becomes more processed, right? right. And less fresh. And you really don't know where it comes from. Issues of access to good food are not exclusive to Puerto Rico. It's a serious problem in many parts of the country. We're very much in a position right now similar to cities like Detroit. Uh, I'd say New Orleans after Katrina. Um, Frontline communities, people of color that have been historically marginalized, historically effed over. And how can we really support all of these communities? One of the things that we're doing right now is really connecting with these other cities around the United States and the world. The Puerto Rico Resilience Fund connects communities across the U.S. and its territories to share resources and knowledge. Tara's goal is to enable Puerto Ricans to take back control of their food system. A lot of progress has been made thanks to her grassroots efforts, but there is a lot at stake. Hurricane season is nearly here again. Tara and the farmers of Puerto Rico are once again facing the threat of losing all that they've rebuilt. To hear my full interview with Tara Rodriguez-Besosa, listen to episode 142 of Heritage Radio Network on tour. To learn more about her project, there's a link to her website in the episode description. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Write us anytime at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Be sure to save some room on your plate for Meetin 3 every Friday afternoon. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you love what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you love this show, recommend us to your friends. Meet and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Margaret Kelly, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is David Tadashore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks this week to Hearst Ranch Beef, the Julia Child Foundation, and Julie Schaefer for making HRN's coverage of Slow Food Nations possible. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Tune in next week for a new episode of Meet and 3. We're getting wired and taking a look at the intersection of food and technology.